This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg On the bottom of page 497, second paragraph from the bottom The Torah and the mitzvot are... an activist program for the Jew and for the Jewish people. It's through the Torah and the mitzvot that the Jewish people are actually bringing about the Messianic era, the coming of Mashiach. We actually bring about the coming of Mashiach. Mashiach is not just an, or, or a reward. Like we do Torah and mitzvot, we do good, and God rewards us, and He does good for us, and He brings us Mashiach. No. The Torah and the mitzvot, this is an activist program through which we make it happen. We bring Mashiach. We make it happen. We bring it. How do we bring it? All of the mitzvot involve our physical self, our natural self, our physical selves, our bodies. Not only ourselves, but also the world around us. Because in order to do the mitzvah, you have to have strength. You have to have physical strength to do the mitzvah. What gives you the physical strength? It's all the food that you ate that gives you the physical strength. In order to do the mitzvah, you have, to, you have to pay. You have to pay money in order to purchase the object of the mitzvah. What enables you to go ahead and to purchase the object of the mitzvah? It's the business that you did and everything that you've done in order to enable you to physically do the mitzvah. So when you do the mitzvah, you connect. You're actually connecting your, your physical self, your natural self. And the world around you, you're connecting and transforming it into something godly. So when a Jew does a mitzvah in this physical world, you're actually changing the very material, the very fabric of this world is changed. That this world changes from being something material into something godly and holy. And it's a result of this change that ultimately this will lead to the Messianic era, the coming of Mashiach. Because each and every one of us, each and every Jew, is given a portion of this world. And that's what he's going to explain now. And together, collectively, when each and every Jew elevates and transforms the world, our portion of the world, then together we elevate and we transform the entire world. And once this entire world becomes a godly place, a dwelling place for God, when we do a mitzvah, we make this world a home for God. God says, I feel at home in this physical world. And that's the purpose of creation. God desired to feel at home in this physical world. Where is God's essence revealed? God's essence is revealed only in this material world, in this physical world. Which is the least likely candidate. You would think that godliness should be revealed in the more spiritual world, in the more sublime world. No one, none of us would suspect that where is God's essence revealed? in the most unsuspecting place in this physical material world. Because this world seems to be completely disconnected. The higher realms, the spiritual realms, the higher levels of consciousness, they're obviously the world, their energy is connected to its source. Those worlds are connected 
feel and sense that there is a source. They, they're somewhat connected to godliness. This world seems to be a complete interruption. We, this is the egotistical world, an arrogant world, a very self-centered, self-absorbed world, which doesn't even acknowledge that there is a source. We don't feel, we don't sense like we're the light that's connected to its source. We feel completely independent. So much so that the world even denies that there is a source. Nature, Mother Nature. As if there is, there is no need to explain itself. Why am I here? Who created me? I am because I am. So this world would seem to be the least likely candidate for a dwelling place for God, so to speak. A place where God says, I feel at home. A place where God's essence is fully revealed. Without no concealment. And yet, this is the place that God desired. We don't understand it. But God desired that out of all the worlds, it's this world that God could completely manifest His essence. The higher realms, religion, spirituality, the higher realms, the higher levels of consciousness, the sublime worlds, the angelic worlds, the heavens and the heaven of heavens. That's a downgrade for God. That's not where God could reveal His essence. That's only a glimmer of a ray that's nothing in comparison to God, who's the sun, the essence, the source. Where is this source completely revealed, the essence completely revealed, God's essence completely revealed, unscreened? It's only in this physical material, in this egotistical world. Because only God can create a world, an ego. And when we take this egotistical, this material, physical world, when we take this raw material, which appears to be the antithesis of Godness, and we do a mitzvah. We take the leather heart of the animal and we put on the tefillin. And we take the leather heart of the animal and we write the Sefer Torah. And we take the money and we give it to charity. And we light the Shabbat candle. And we eat kosher. Anything, all of the mitzvot. When we physically, we eat the matzah, we blow the shofar, we shake the lulav and the esrog. When we do the mitzvah, the physical mitzvah, we are physically transforming the material, the raw material, into something godly, into a dwelling place for God, a place where God's essence is fully revealed and manifest, even though we don't sense it today. When we do a mitzvah, we don't sense it. Were we to sense what we're accomplishing every time we do a mitzvah, every time any one of us does any mitzvah, we'll be jumping from joy and ecstasy. If we were to sense the essence of God, that we're drawing down the essence of God into this world, that we're completely transforming and creating the ultimate miracle the ultimate novelty that this material, dense world is becoming a dwelling place, a vehicle, a vessel, a vessel for the essence of God, a dwelling place for God, we'll be jumping from joy. We don't sense anything. It's the rare tzaddik, the righteous person, the holy person, the one or two in a, in a generation that senses the divine and the godly every time they do a mitzvah. And they jump from joy and ecstasy every time they do a mitzvah. For us, it's more, we have to discipline ourselves, we have to force ourselves to do a mitzvah. It's a struggle. It's a constant daily struggle and daily conflict. But just armed with the knowledge, what we're accomplishing, that even though we don't sense it today, but we know that as a result of our mitzvah, as a result of our effort, and as a result of our collective effort, one day there'll be a moment. And it can happen literally this very moment. One day there'll be a moment when the essence of God will be fully revealed in this world, when we'll sense God. Till today it's hidden, it's concealed. We don't sense it, we don't feel it. We don't realize everything that we've accomplished over the last 3,300 years. But it's there. The energy is there. The reality is there. We are changing the world one bit at a time. And we have drawn down godliness. And there'll be a moment when as a result of all the accumulation of all that energy, there'll be a critical mass 
when in one split second there'll be an awakening, a stirring, and a realization that God is with us. God's essence is completely manifest. You'll feel God is. And not just a manifestation of God, a glimmer of a ray, but God's very essence. Just like at the giving of the Torah. And during Revelation, God's essence was revealed. And that's why the Jewish soul expired in ecstasy. It was so, such an overwhelming experience that this world became a dwelling place for God. The Jews sense God, the reality of God, that there's, that there's no other reality but God. But that was just a taste, a temporary experience. And then we quickly sinned with the sin of the golden calf and we reverted back to our, our good old selves, our nature. But when Mashiach will come, then the transformation will be permanent. The world will be changed for good and forever. There will never be a reversal. There will never be a backslide. There will be a complete transformation. Because it will come as a result of our effort and our sacrifice and our mitzvot over thousands of years. Our individual and collective effort. And it's not only the Jewish people that would sense God. As a result of this revelation, it will spill over that the entire world, all six billion people, will have a sense of godliness. Godliness will become manifest. That this world will be transformed instead of a dark world, a dense world, an egotistical world, a selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, harsh, cruel, unkind world. This world will be permanently transformed. It will become an enlightened world, a godly world, a wholesome world, a good world, a genuine world, a kind world. And this transformation comes about through our effort. We are in the driver's seat. We make it happen. Judaism is an activist way of life. We don't sit passively and wait for the coming of the Messiah. We do something about it. We have a program. It's a 613-step program. It's through the mitzvot. Through the mitzvah, through our individual and collective effort, over the thousand, over the millennium, we make it happen. And the good news is that we are on the threshold. As a result of all the accumulation of all the sacrifice and all the blood, unfortunately, and all the tears and all the mitzvot and the effort, it's imminent. It's any moment. We're ready, we're, we're standing at the threshold of that critical mass. Like Jackie Mason said, he was a comedian for 40 years and then he became an overnight success. So Mashiach is overnight, in one split second. But we only, we've only been working at it for the last 3,320 years, since the giving of the Torah. And every moment of our life, since we became Bar and Bat Mitzvah. So we've been working at this. And now we're ready for the reward, but the reward... It's not an external reward. The reward is actually we, we're going to see the result of our, the consequence of our actions. Today we don't see the result or the consequence of our behavior, of our sacrifice, our daily heroic sacrifice, all the struggles and the difficulties, and the engagement with the physical. Why do we pour so much effort and energy to engage our natural self? Why can't Judaism be like all other religions? Emphasize the heart, love, the mind, meditation, spirituality, philosophy. Why engage the body, the physical, eating kosher? What does eating have to do with godliness? And yet every mitzvah emphasizes the physical. And it's a struggle. Because the body, the physical, the ego, the natural soul doesn't seem to be a good student. Can't relate to godliness, can't relate to spirituality. We, by nature, we're very egotistical. 
it's very difficult for us to relate to all these abstract concepts, godliness, and, and yet, this is our emphasis. We spend our entire lives engaging the material soul, but we don't see the result of all this effort, of all this sacrifice, of our daily sacrifice. Until that moment, when Mashiach will come, then we'll see the result of every single sacrifice that we've made in our lives. We'll see the result of all the mitzvah that we've done. Every last mitzvah. Every single mitzvah. Even one mitzvah that we do is so powerful. It's so transcendent. It just brings, it draws down God's essence into this world. It makes God feel at home into this world. Who can underestimate the power of one single mitzvah? And especially the accumulation of all the mitzvah that we've done over our lifetime. And not only ourselves individually, but collectively. Every Jew that's alive today, and every Jew that ever lived throughout all the generations, then Mashiach will come, we'll see the result of all that effort. Okay, you want to read the second paragraph from the bottom, page 497. These 600,000 particular souls, however, are roots, and like a root from which grow numerous branches, each root soul subdivides into 600,000 sparks, each spark being one neshama. Similarly, with the nefesh and ruach in each of the four worlds, Asilat, Bariya, Yasira, and Asiya, in each of these four worlds are found all three soul levels, Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama. Each spark did not descend into this world to perfect itself, but to perfect the body and vital soul. As the Altar Rebbe will soon conclude, having touched upon the subject of the soul's descent, however, he adds a parenthetical comment, emphasizing the magnitude of this descent. On entering this world, a soul may perhaps attain the loftiest heights of love and fear of Hashem that are experienced by a perfect tzaddik. But even this cannot compare to the love and fear that it experienced while in the spiritual world before its descent. So he's saying that although there are more than 600,000 Jews, but that's like the archetype. The entire Jewish people are divided into 600,000 souls that left Egypt. And each of these souls has 600,000 sparks. So all the Jewish people throughout the generations, each one of them was assigned, has an assignment, was a portion, a portion of this world. And if you look in Jewish history, there's a method to the madness of exile. God moved us around the world. Because the Jewish people, over time, had to elevate the entire world. So every country that we lived in and we interacted with, we elevated the sparks of that country, all the holy sparks. And once the Jewish people finished their assignment and they elevated all the sparks, and they left no sparks behind, then they moved on. They were expelled or they moved on. But everything is divine providence. It wasn't just by accident. At first... We lived near Israel, in close proximity to Israel after the exile. And then we moved, Jewish life flourished in Babylonia and Iraq. Then Jewish life moved farther out to North Africa, Western Europe, France, Germany. That's where Jewish life flourished. Spain. Then after the Spanish Inquisition, the Jewish center shifted to Eastern Europe. And that became the new center of Jewish life for the Ashkenazic Jews. And then... And then the Jewish life shifted to the lower hemisphere, to the, United, to the Americas, the United States. So, because this is part of our mission. 
Our mission is to elevate all of the holy sparks. So God spread us throughout all the world, different cultures, different milieus, so that each and every one of us, individually and collectively, we should elevate all of the sparks. And this is the whole purpose. The whole purpose of the soul coming down into this world is in order to elevate the sparks. And for the soul, this world is a very traumatic experience. That's why when the baby is born, the baby cries. It's like the soul just will just plunge. It's like a, for the soul, it's a plunge from the peak to the abyss, from its sublime, heavenly perch to come down to such a dark world, a world that could be so harsh, a world that's the antithesis of everything that's godly and good and decent and fine and wholesome, a lying world, come from a world of truth where everything is genuine, to come to a world which is so filled with lies, its whole being is a lie, its whole existence is... It parades itself, its own existence, without even with the denying that it even has a source. Everything about this world is so false. It's so riddled with falsehoods. What's politics, if not falsehood? Why do you have to go to school to learn diplomacy? If you tell the truth, you have nothing to go to school for. You have to go to school to learn how to lie. You know, in, the, in diplomacy, when they say we had a, a very frank discussion, it means we agreed on nothing and we fought all day. I mean, you have to read between the lines. Nothing is what it means. Everything, everything is meant to mean something else. If it was a genuine world, you wouldn't have diplomacy. In a genuine world, you would have two candidates running for office. Each one would say, don't vote for me, vote for, my, uh, vote for the other person. He's much better than me. And the other one says, no, vote for, vote for him. We live in a very false world. Everything about this world is self-promotional. Everything about this world is ego. Everything about this world is very false. For the soul, it's a very traumatic experience to leave a heavenly world, a godly world, a holy world, a spiritual world where everything is illuminated, everything is good, and to come into a dazzlingly brilliant world and to come into a world that's so dark, spiritually dark and so dense, it's, it's traumatic. And you know, the soul never gets over it. The soul is always an existential angst. The soul is an anguish. That's why we're so restless. That's why we can never make peace. We're never at peace. Our soul is so restless. That's why Jews practically invented psychology. Because of this existential angst that we suffer from. Most psychologists are Jews and most of their patients are Jews. There's something agitating within our soul. That's why we're always creating revolutions. There's something that something doesn't let us sleep. It doesn't let us rest. There's, there's something inside because it's that existential angst. The soul can never make peace. We just can't make peace with the status quo. We just can't go to sleep and live nine to five lives and just barbecue and be happy. It doesn't work that way. We're just there's, there's just something inside of us that just that just bubbles away because. It's that existential angst. Something is nagging at us. Something is There's a restlessness. Because the soul can never get used to this traumatic descent from heaven to earth. So why did the soul come into this world? And he's saying the soul did not come into this world for itself. Because firstly, the soul in heaven was perfect. Why did it have to come into this world? And even when a soul does achieve some level of spirituality, even a person who is able to be in touch with his soul, 
that rare and privileged soul, individual, that's able to listen to his soul, and is able to communicate with his soul, and is able to allow his soul to express itself, and is able to develop a sense of spirituality, a sense of love for the divine, a sense of connection to the divine, a sense of awe for the divine. It pales in comparison to the level of love and awe and connection that the soul felt before it came into this world. So it can never really go back to its origin, the way it was its original state, before it descended into this world. When the soul was in heaven, stripped from the physical body, no ego, no body, it was just a purely spiritual state, a state of consciousness, the soul was much more sublime than anything it could achieve. Even the greatest tzaddik, the highest person, a person who's so spiritual, so in touch with his soul, he and his soul are one. It's a pale comparison in relation to the way the soul was in heaven. It's almost like a a, a caricature of the way the soul was. It's like projecting a three-dimensional person on a a two-dimensional surface. What do you get? A cartoon. So the soul of this world, as deeply as we can feel, even if you feel very deeply, and you have raw, deep spiritual emotions, the real tzaddik who has that ability to really sense and experience spirituality, it's like, it's, like, it's like a caricature of the way the soul was in a disembodied state. So why would the soul come down into this world? It's such a traumatic experience of the soul. What's the purpose? And he says here, the soul did not come into this world for its own tikkun, for its own... Because the soul doesn't need it. The soul is perfect without coming into the body. The soul was perfect in heaven. It was far better off in heaven than it is here. So why did the soul come into this world? What can justify such a traumatic experience for the soul? And every day of our lives we have to justify this trauma because the soul never gets used to it. It's in constant pain. How do you soothe the pain of the soul? How do you justify this traumatic experience? Why the constant anguish and the constant sense of dissatisfaction that the soul experiences? Why? What's the point? What's the purpose? And the purpose is the soul entered into the body not for its own sake, but the ultimate purpose is to elevate the animal soul, to elevate our egos, to elevate our bodies, to change, to make a dent in our egos, to make a dent in our bodies, to elevate all those holy sparks in the, that are within the physical, within the material. And that's why the whole emphasis of a Jew has to be your personality, your character. If your soul doesn't affect your personality and your character and doesn't change your behavior and doesn't change your real day-to-day self, then why did the soul come into this world? The soul was perfect before it entered into this world. And for the soul, this whole experience is just very painful and traumatic. The whole purpose was to elevate the sparks that are found in the physical, in the natural soul, in the material world. And it's only by elevating the sparks that the soul fulfills God's desire. God's desire to have a home in this world, to feel at home in this world. That His essence should be fully revealed and manifest in this world. Through our mitzvot. And then the soul is truly elevated. When the soul fulfills and carries out God's desire, fulfills its mission, as God's ambassador into this world. We are God's representative. 
We were sent on a mission. I am God's ambassador. God sent me into this world. I am his personal em- uh, emissary. I represent Hashem and I'm here to bring Hashem into this world. To bring God's essence into this world. How do I bring God's essence into this world? By using my arms to light a Shabbos candle. Using my arms to do a mitzvah, to do kindness. To give tzedakah. Using my arms to put on tefillin. To fulfill the 613 mitzvah. By elevating and transforming the physical world around me and connecting it with godliness by doing a mitzvah. Which touches every aspect of my life. That's my mission. That's my purpose. And when the soul fulfills its mission, then the soul, the pain is soothed. The soul is elevated. Because the soul has brought God's essence into this world. And as, as we learned earlier, as great as the soul is, as perfect as the soul was in heaven, the soul is limited. It's finite. But when you fulfill your mission, and you become God's representative and ambassador, an emissary, and you draw down God's essence into this world by you fulfilling Torah mitzvot and you leading a Jewish life in thought, speech, and action, then you become connected with the essence of God. The soul is elevated to a place that the soul can never achieve in its own. It's only through the physical mitzvah that, that the soul is elevated. The soul comes in contact with the essence of God. In heaven, the soul doesn't know what God looks like. It's when the soul comes into this world, when we, when we fulfill our mission and fulfill it joyfully, that's when we become connected with the essence of God. So that's the entire purpose of the soul's descent, traumatic descent into this world. So could you imagine every day that goes by and we don't do a mitzvah? How do we justify it? Every day that we live in this world and we don't do a mitzvah, we don't do something Jewish. We don't do a Jewish act on that day. We don't study a little Torah, say the Shema, give a penny to tzedakah, light a candle, do a mitzvah, put on the tefillin. How do we justify the pain of the soul? The angst, the existential angst that the soul experiences. Even if we don't feel it, it doesn't change the fact. The fact is that the soul is in anguish. The soul is crying. Just because you don't hear that cry, just because we're so numb, and our senses are so dulled, and we're so complacent, that we don't feel any anguish, it doesn't change the reality. The reality is that we're in anguish, and we're not happy. Psychologists will tell you that the Jewish patients are from the most angriest patients they, ever, they have ever encountered. They're just not happy. We, met the, we had a, one of our speakers in our Shabbatons. Before we moved to the Upper East Side, he used to arrange Shabbatons in Granites. Uh, Dr. Landis, he was the first certified psychologist in, in, in California. And he told us that he, it, it, always, you know, it always intrigued him that his Jewish patients are from the angriest patients he ever seen. There's something in their soul that just... There's, there's, their souls are in turmoil. They're just angry and upset and dissatisfied and discontented. They, don't, they themselves have no clue what it's about. But there's something about the Jewish soul. The Jewish soul is in anguish, especially. Has this existential angst. And the only thing that will soothe us and the only thing that will satisfy us is when you do the Torah and you do the mitzvah. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And He says, in order for us to be whole, to be psychologically whole, He gave us a program of Torah and Mitzvah. 
if you'll cry on Tishabah and you'll dance on Simchas Torah and you light the candle of Hanukkah and you eat the matzah and Pesach and you put on tefillin in the six days on Shabbos you, you rest the whole program of Torah Mitzvah this is the way the Jewish soul could express itself in a wholesome way and this soothes the soul because when the soul lives with a sense of mission and a sense of purpose that I am God's personal ambassador representative into this world so the ambassador goes to a foreign, a foreign place goes to an alien hostile environment but you carry yourself with strength do it with joy because you are you are on the front line you are manning your post and you are bringing the light of godliness into this world into this dark world you are transforming the darkness into light that is our mission our individual and collective mission as Jews is to transform darkness into light. And that's why we have to engage in the darkness. God exiled us from the land of Israel. He sent us all over the world to some very dark places, very hostile places. Because that is our mission, to transform the darkness into light. Not to run away and hide and escape, tune in and tune out, but to engage and to transform the darkness into light, to bring the light of godliness into this world. And this is especially the mission of the Jewish woman, who one of her mitzvot that's entrusted in her is to light the candles. All of the mitzvot are compared to a candle, because all of the mitzvot bring light into this world, the light of godliness. But how much more so when the mitzvah itself is to physically light a candle? It only emphasizes the power of the light that the Jewish woman brings into the home and into the world when she lights a candle. But that is our mission, to transform darkness into light. The material into spirit. So when the soul lives with a sense of mission and sense of purpose, then the soul is elevated to a place that the soul, had the soul remained in heaven, it could never ever even come close. Because the heaven is just a projection of God. It's a rimmer, it's a, it's a, a glimmer of a ray. But it's only in this world, through the mitzvah, that we're actually touching the essence of God. We're connecting with the very essence of God. We're drawing down the essence of God, a home for God. We're building a home for God. God says, I feel at home. I'm completely manifest in this world through your mitzvah. The physical object literally becomes a holy object, a sacred object. You've transformed the very nature of the material into something godly and sacred and holy. Not just a symbol. The physical object literally becomes a sacred, a godly, a divine object. You connect with the essence of God. And all of this will become manifest with the coming of Mashiach. But we are accomplishing it today. Jeff, want to continue? Though it is, it is indeed a great descent. Though it is indeed a great descent, a veritable exile for the soul, for even if it become in this world a perfect tzaddik, serving Hashem with fear and delighting in an abounding love of Him, it will not attain to the quality of its attachment to Hashem, with fear and love that the soul experienced prior to its descent into this corporeal world, nor even to a fraction of its earlier fear and love. In fact, there is no comparison or similarity whatever between them, between the love and fear of Hashem experienced by a soul on earth and that of the soul above. For as is obvious to every intelligent man, the body could not bear, etc., a love and fear of such intensity as the soul experienced above in the spiritual realm. Any emotion that we feel, no matter how deep or how intense the emotion, it's nothing. It's not even a fragment. It's not, a, not even a fraction. It, it's not even a pale comparison to its, origin, to, to its our original capacity 
of uh, the soul's capacity to love because we're limited by the body. So even the complete tzaddik, even the perfect tzaddik, the highest level is very limited. We're limited by our bodies. We're physical beings. And we're finite. Continue. Having concluded his comment on the formidable nature of the soul's descent, the Alter Rebbe returns to his original point. The descent of the soul is thus yeah. undertaken, not for its own sake. But its descent into this world to be clothed in a body and vital soul is for the sole purpose of perfecting them. To separate them from the evil of the three impure kalipat by observing the 365 prohibitions in their offshoots, for example, by observing the biblical and rabbinic prohibition. Our first mission, our first assignment, primary assignment, is to our bodies. Our soul is assigned our bodies. And every one of our bodies is unique. We all have our unique mishagas and we all have our unique difficulties and challenges. They're custom made. Every one of us has their difficulties that they have to deal with. Their challenges. But the soul is more than up to the challenge. God doesn't give us a test that we can't handle. He doesn't demand from us something in the Torah and then he makes it impossible for us. No such thing. If you believe in God, you believe that God doesn't give us a test that we can't handle. So if he gave us our unique challenges, as difficult as they may appear to be, the soul is more than equipped to handle these challenges. There's no such thing I can't change. No such thing. It's impossible. I might, I, I, I might have to resign. I can't. This is who I am, and I'm resigned. There's no resignation. So that's our first assignment. By way of 365 prohibitions, as he said earlier, the prohibitions protect us. That we shouldn't, just like the veins, they compare to the veins, which keep the, the blood flowing in the right, in the proper place. If there's, God forbid, a puncture in the vein, the blood will spill out. So we have this energy that God gave us. The prohibitions protect us from not squandering this, en- this energy into the wrong place. Don't spend your energy in the wrong place, in the wrong things. Maintain your passion for the right things. Your blood, your passion your, for the right things. So the mitzvot, the prohibitions protect us. Channel our energy into the right way. Protect us not to squander our energy and that passion, that life, and that vitality that God gave us into negativity. That's the effect of the, of the prohibitions. And then, of course, the positive mitzvot, the active mitzvot, continue. And to elevate his vital soul with the portion of the world at large that relates to it, binding and uniting them with the Ein Sof light which he draws into them by performing all the 248 positive mitzvot through the agency of the vital soul. Since the vital soul is the one that performs all mitzvot, including action, as explained above, in chapter 36, that the divine soul can activate the body in performance of the mitzvah only by way of the vital soul. So that is the purpose of the positive mitzvah, to engage the vital soul, the ego soul, the natural soul, and all that energy, and everything that went into it, to connect it with godliness. Every time you do a mitzvah, it's not only your organ and the limb and your body that becomes connected to God, but the energy with which you're moving that organ, and with which you're doing the mitzvah, performing the mitzvah, and everything that went into it also becomes connected with God. And your whole a vital soul, your whole ego soul also becomes connected to God through doing the mitzvah. In general, and then specifically 
the energy that went into that specific organ with which you're, you're, you're doing the mitzvah. So that is the purpose. Through every mitzvah, another portion of our vital soul, of our animal soul, becomes connected with God. Until through all 248 mitzvah, which correspond to 248 limbs, your whole entire soul, your whole entire body, every organ in your body, and every... Every, aspect, every energy within your animal soul becomes connected with God. And that's our mission. The mission of the soul is to connect the physical and the material. So therefore, instead of looking at the material world as a necessary evil, there are many people who go through life and have a, a wrong understanding of our, the way we look at this world. Many people go through life and look at this world as a necessary evil. I have no choice. I have bills to pay. So I have to work. I have to engage in the world. I wish I can sit all day and study Torah and disconnect myself from the world, go on a mountaintop, tune in, tune out. You know, a monkish existence, a a nunish existence. But that's not the Jewish way. That's a complete lack of understanding of what life in this world is all about. That's why he's trying to open our eyes. This is not a necessary evil. We have no choice. So therefore, we have no choice. Nebuch, we have to go out into the world and we have to engage in the world and we have to, if, I, if it was up to me, I would hold myself in, lock myself up, and I would just divorce myself from the world, disconnect myself from the world, and I would immerse myself in spirituality 24-7. It would be Shabbos. Why not have Shabbos six days a week? <laughs> Cholim six days a week, and one day a week you work. You have to pay bills, okay, you work. A concession, a compromise, okay. But it's not the way God set up the world. Six days a week we work. One day shops. Total immersion in spirituality. But six days a week, you have to engage in the world. So he's opening our eyes, he's explaining to us, this is our mission. This is a Jew's mission. This is the only reason the soul came down into this world. Because if you think you're going to be, have Shabbos six days a week and be spiritual, you are much more spiritual in heaven. Why bother coming to this world altogether? You could have stayed in heaven. We would have been much more spiritual than any level of spirituality we can acquire in this world. Through all the meditation, you can meditate 24-7. You'll never be as spiritual as you are in heaven. Or as you will be after 120 years. So why, why come into this world? Why this trauma? Why this whole experience of life? in this physical material world. So you have to realize this is the whole purpose. This is what God wanted. This is what God desired. It's not an accident. It's not a necessary evil. This is the whole purpose of creation. As a matter of fact, the only reason God created the spiritual realms was in order to fulfill this purpose. This is the ultimate purpose of creation. This is why God created the whole universe, heaven and earth. The ultimate purpose is earth and the lowest. And it's only in this world that God wants us to transform the darkness into light and therefore drawing down God's essence. So when you go about your daily life, your business, you're standing in the office, don't think to yourself, so what am I accomplishing? I'm not in the spiritual environment. I'm not doing anything that's ostensibly holy or godly. I'm going about my business. I feel disconnected. But nothing could be further than the truth. You are God's ambassador. You are his personal emissary. You are fulfilling the whole purpose of creation. That's why God created the angels. It's all for this. This is, the, this is the pinnacle. This is what it's all about. Why did the soul have to journey and venture into this world if not for this? 
to deal with the darkness, to elevate the darkness, to transform the darkness, to change. So when you realize this, it gives you a tremendous sense of purpose, connection. This is the ultimate purpose. So instead of feeling that my life is compartmentalized, you know, I'm Jewish when I'm sitting in the synagogue. I'm Jewish when I'm praying. But when I walk away from the synagogue, it's such a desert. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a dark world out there. It's such the opposite of everything. The environment in the synagogue is so holy, is so uplifting. The environment on Shabbat, the environment on a holiday is so uplifting, inspiring, moving. And then you walk out into the world, dark, cold. Okay, I have no choice. What can I do? So your life almost becomes compartmentalized. You have two lives. You have your inner life and you have your outer life. You're compromised to the world. So this chapter in Tanya opens your eyes and says, no, on the contrary, you're one Jew, you're not compartmentalized. You're as Jewish as you get when you're standing in the office. When you're standing in the office, when you're not doing something that's obviously Jewish. You're just going about your daily life, pursuing your career. That's when you're fulfilling the ultimate purpose of creation. Because God wanted you to engage in the material and to transform the material into spiritual. The only way you can do that is when you engage the material. When you're standing in your office. When you're eating. When you're engaged in your body. When you're physically doing the mitzvah. When you're going about your daily life. So yes, you don't sense the connection. Because it's not a spiritual connection. You don't sense, it's not an obvious connection. But look beneath the, underneath the obvious, beneath the obvious. That's your deepest connection. In a certain sense, you're more connected when you're standing in the office than when you are in the synagogue. How's that? Counterintuitive. The exact opposite. So a Jew always feels connected. I mean, this is so revolutionary. This is so counterintuitive. We would never think like that. All religions teach us spirituality, disconnect, divorce, become a nun, become a monk, tune in, tune out, go to the mountaintop, meditate, love, spirituality. Comes Judaism and says, no, it's the deed that matters. Get a job. Get a job. That's a mitzvah. Just like there's a mitzvah to, to rest, just like there's a mitzvah to rest on Shabbos, there's a mitzvah in the Torah to work six days a week. It's a mitzvah. You're not only being Jewish when you're resting on Shabbos. You're fulfilling your mission and your purpose when you're working six days a week. That's the whole reason your soul came down to this world. So this opens your eyes. Suddenly you realize that you're, you're connected 24-7, whatever you're doing, especially when you're engaging in the material world how deep that connection is, how profound that connection is. It's then that you're fulfilling the whole purpose of creation. You're God's personal messenger and ambassador to bring God's essence into that darkness, to transform the material into something godly, into the spiritual. Wow. Changes your whole attitude, your whole perspective. Suddenly the world is not such a, it's not the inside versus the outside. You're not frightened by the world. You walk confidently. You carry yourself with pride and dignity. And you go about fulfilling your Jewish mission with a sense of joy, a sense of purpose, a sense of connection. Connecting. We are the connectors. We are the lamplighters. That's our mission. To light up the darkness. We compare to stars. The stars light up the darkness. The night. You can navigate by the stars. That's our mission. To be a, a light. 
a light into the nations, to transform the darkness into light, to bring light into, the, into these darkness. Not to surrender to the darkness or succumb to the darkness, but to change the darkness, transform the world. And when you go about your business, and like he said here, you do business in an honest way, you're not violating any of the prohibitions between man and man, God forbid, or between man and God. You're doing business honestly. Not like Laban did business, but like Jacob did business. The way a Jew does business, you do business honestly. There are responsibilities, employer, employee, vice versa. And then when you go about doing your business properly and honestly, and then you take that energy and you take that money that you've accumulated and acquired and you use it to do a mitzvah, you give tzedakah. You take that energy and you study Torah with that energy and you do a mitzvah with that energy. Then you're connecting the whole world. That's our mission, to connect. Connect our bodies, starting with our souls, to connect the world around us, to connect everything we interact with, everything we come in contact with. We connect. We put a mezuzah on the door and suddenly our whole home becomes connected to God. And everything that happens, all the activities in our home that we socialize, not only when we do something that's ostensibly spiritual and godly. Our homes, our daily lives, everything becomes connected with God. That's the whole purpose of of Judaism. That's the whole purpose of, of the Torah of creation. So suddenly you look at this world becomes a friendlier place. You realize the holy potential that we have in this world. As we go about our daily lives, we have the potential to connect the whole world to Hashem. We have the the, the potential to satisfy God's desire, God's wish, that He have a dwelling place, that He feels at home in this world. We have the potential to transform the darkness into light, to perform the ultimate miracle, the ultimate creative act. This, this chapter is very revolutionary. It changes your whole approach to life. And instead of allowing the world to define itself for you, the Jew is not afraid to tackle the world head on, to utilize all modern technology and to utilize it. And we will define the world according to our terms. We don't have to allow the world to define itself for us. The world defines itself as a jungle, as the Wild West. No morality. Just be smart. Let's see who can get away with murder. How long. That's how the world defines itself. But that's not how we have to define us. We define this world in Jewish terms. We do business, we do business honestly. Not because we can't get away with it. Because there's a God in this world. Our whole being in this world is only to transform the darkness into light. And therefore, we're not afraid of the world. Because this world is God's world. This world is potentially a dwelling place for God. A place that God says, I feel at home. It doesn't have to be a jungle. It doesn't have to be the wild west. This world is a garden of Eden. God created the world as a garden of Eden. When the Jews stood at Sinai for a brief moment, once again, this world became a garden of Eden. We got a taste of the future. When Mashiach will come, this world will permanently become and forever remain a garden of Eden. A good world, a godly world, a wholesome world. Not only in the synagogue and in the, in the Beit HaMedrash. In the streets on Park Avenue. And we are bringing about this world today. Through our mitzvot. Through our going about our daily lives. And fulfilling all 630 mitzvot which affect every aspect of our life. Our business, our homes, every aspect of our, our relationship. We bring about this reality. We make this world happen. We are God's emissaries and ambassadors to bring about this reality.
So this gives us tremendous encouragement, tremendous inner strength to overcome our personal challenges, to overcome our struggles, to face the sacrifices, the small sacrifices, the greatest sacrifices that we have to make, the imaginary challenges and the real challenges that we have. Most of them are imaginary, but even the real challenges that we have. Um, this gives us the strength and the courage and the, and the sense of joy. That we don't feel doomed. You know, the rest of our life, we're going to have to struggle. It's so much easier just to resign, throw in the towel, and let me move on to something easier. Why, why bother? Why deal with a those areas in our life that are so difficult to deal with, that the more we change, it seems to be the more things stay the same. <laughs> we're, not, we're, not, we're not budging. So why don't I just quit while I'm behind and just focus on those areas of my life that are easy? That, that's not the Jewish approach. This gives us encouragement. Yes, life is a struggle. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, especially those areas in your life that are most difficult are the most important areas in your life. That's the darkness that you have to change was custom-made for you. That darkness, that challenge was custom-made for you. And you have the ability to overcome. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up hope. Learn this chapter and you realize that that's where God's essence is. That's where our Fort Max is. That's the whole purpose the soul came down into this world. So you're going you're to give up the areas in your life that are difficult you're going to focus on the areas in your life that, are, that mean nothing. Then your whole existence here was a waste. What's the point? What's the purpose? Why did, why did, it's not necessary. Why did the soul have to come into this world? It would have been happier off staying in heaven. The only thing that can justify this traumatic descent is only when you fulfill your purpose. When you engage in the darkness and transform the darkness into light. When you physically do the myth and do the right deed and do the right thing. On the bottom of page 499. It is likewise written in X Chaim portal 26 that the divine soul itself does not need perfecting at all and there is no need for it to be embodied in this world in a body and vital soul except to draw down light to perfect them the vital soul and the body and this parallels exactly the mystery of the exile of the Shekinah whose purpose is to refine the sparks of holiness which fell into the klipat so too does the divine soul enter into exile within the body and vital soul in order to perfect them and to extract from them the sparks of holiness which they contain. The foregoing discussion enables us to understand the particular virtue of mitzvah performed through action. Creation and the soul's descent into the body were both intended for the purpose of elevating the body and vital soul and thereby the entire world. He says the soul is a mirror of the Shekhinah, which is God's presence. And although it's a mystery, why did the soul have to take the plunge into the body, into the physical consciousness, human consciousness, which for the soul is so traumatic and the soul suffers existential angst, some constant pain from this traumatic descent. Even when the soul fulfills its mission and it elevates all of the sparks. But nevertheless, since the soul is unable to achieve 
the same level, the same intense level of closeness to godliness that the soul experienced while it was in heaven before it descended into this world. So it's very difficult to explain that why would the soul come into this world and um, for the soul, the soul could never really achieve the same level that it, it experienced um, while it was in heaven. So why would the soul undergo such a traumatic experience? That's why he, he, he introduces the whole concept of the Shekhinah is also an exile. It's one of those mysteries that God's Shekhinah, God's presence is an exile. God is an exile. The temple is destroyed. The Jewish people are exiled because God is exiled. God presently does not feel at home in this world. Many of us have one home. Many, many people here have two homes. Some people have three homes. God is homeless. He doesn't even have a single home. As we speak, God is homeless. His home is broken, shattered. He's in exile. He doesn't feel at home in this world. No wonder people can blow themselves up. People can be so arrogant and egotistical, so unkind. No wonder why God doesn't feel at home in this world. As of this moment. And yet, why did God go into exile? God went into exile in order to elevate all of the sparks. So it's a mystery how the divine, God himself, so to speak, God's manifestation is suffering, is in exile, is homeless, just in order to elevate all of the sparks. We don't understand it. It's inexplicable. Like, how can God go into exile? I mean, anything associated with God should be triumphant, should be victorious. Why is it that goodness and kindness and godliness seem to be on the defensive? In the battle between Athens and Jerusalem, it seems that Athens is triumphant. Jerusalem is an exile. That the Jewish people send their army to kick Jews out of Hebron, out of their own homes, that they purchased legally. In the most publicized, first real estate transaction in the world, in the Bible. And to say that a Jew doesn't have a right to live in Hebron, if a Jew doesn't have a right to live in Hebron, then we have, a, we have no right to live anywhere in Israel. And to kick them out for the crime of being Jewish. Because some Arab Nazis doesn't want to see a Jewish face, so we're accommodating the wishes of Arab Nazis. Because they're so anti-Semitic and they can't stand to live together with the Jews. So we are accommodating this barbaric hatred. So let's get this straight. A Jew is allowed to live in Berlin, a Jew is allowed to live in Moscow, a Jew is allowed to live anywhere in the world. The only place in the world a Jew is not allowed to live today is in Israel. Because he's Jewish. And we send Jewish boys to kick them out of their home. The government can't manage to send, to send their army to protect citizens who are bombarded with missiles every day. There's no country on earth that would tolerate their own citizens being bombarded on a daily basis. This is the most basic human right that we have, is to live in, live in peace. But for political reasons, for politically correct reasons, we're afraid of our own shadow. We don't do what any respecting civilized government would do to protect its own citizens, its own children, its own babies. 
We have thrown the citizens of Shterot to the, to the wolves. This is criminal. When we were attacked from Lebanon, the government, where was the army? It was a disaster, a fiasco. We couldn't protect half of the country was sitting in bunkers because we couldn't get our act together. But when it comes to kicking Jews out of their homes, oh, there we're organized. There we're tough. No, we're, we're, we have to do the right thing. We have to kick those Jews out of their homes. And the prime minister had the chutzpah to call this a pogrom when Jews were defending their lives. I mean, it, it's beyond, this is such an exile. Are we so out of touch with our soul? Are we so out of touch with reality? Are we so out of touch with truth? How, how low have we fallen? This is exile. It's a mystery how God allows himself to be in exile. Instead of everything Jewish being triumphant, everything that's decent being triumphant, truth being triumphant, truth is trampled on. The citizens of Shderot are suffering on a daily basis, and Jews are being kicked out of their home. And we're negotiating to kick out a half a million Jews from the West Bank. It's mind-boggling. This is such a mysterious exile that God allows himself to be on the losing side, so to speak. So nebuch, so weak. What happened to, to courage, to strength, to standing up for what's right, standing up for truth? Are we so politically correct? Are we so afraid of our own shadow? We have no guts to stand up for truth, for, for life, for what's true, for what's right? Our rights? Is life all about living for the Joneses? Just, just to, to, to curry some, some, some imaginary favor? Oh, they're going to love us. If we, only, if we only kick ourselves out, oh, they're going to love us. Israel has never been a greater pariah than today. The more we twist ourselves into a pretzel, the more we hate it. It doesn't work. When you have pride and you have dignity, when you have a little courage and stand up, use your Jewish chutzpah when you need it to speak the truth and stand up for Jewish life and for our right to live anywhere in Israel. So this is such an exile. It's such a deep, dark exile. So for God to allow himself to be in exile, that truth and godliness and goodness to be so trampled on, and it seems we're on the losing side. Every day Israel is getting smaller and smaller. And evil seems to be just growing. This is a mystery. We don't understand this. How God allows himself to go into exile. How can God, God is reality. There's nothing else but God. How can God allow himself to go into such a deep exile? Allow himself, his temple should be destroyed. His people dispersed. His truth trampled on. When the Torah says that God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people forever and ever, and He allows that Torah to be trampled on, there's some foolish politicians to get up there and say, oh, we're, we're giving up Israel forever and ever. We're creating a Palestinian state. That's never going to happen. Not in God's lifetime. Look, in 1948, the entire world was against Israel. Even now, the United States wouldn't sell a single arms to Israel. They were attacked by six armies. Not a single country would sell a single bullet to Israel. The whole world was against Israel. And you know what? God wanted it to happen, and it happened. It's, Oslo has been going on since 1993. Yeah, yeah. The world spent 10, 20 billion dollars on this project. The entire world endorsed the Palestinian state. You noticed. <laughs> 
It's more, not happening. More Jews die in the peace process than in the time of war? Yeah. It's not happening. God doesn't want it. It's not going to happen because it says in the Torah the Jewish Israel belongs to the Jewish people forever and ever. All these clowns, it, they can talk from today till tomorrow. At the end of the day, nothing is going to happen. You can't fight against the creator of heaven and earth. Anyone who started up with Israel, anyone who tried this Palestinian state, his career ended in disgrace. Every prime minister in Israel that started as connected with this Oslo, that was the end of him. In, in disgrace. Because you're going against the creator of heaven and earth. God says in this Torah, Torah is the reality, is the blueprint for reality. Israel belongs to the Jewish people forever and ever. Anyone who tries to get in the way of Jewish destiny, you, you, you're, you are going to start up with the creator of heaven and earth. God says in his Torah, in his Bible, in his blueprint for reality, that Israel belongs to the Jewish people forever and ever. This is my home, God says, my palace. I marry the Jewish people and I'm going to live with my spouse forever and ever. You are going to divide the Holy Land? You are negotiating my bedroom, Jerusalem? Really? How arrogant could anyone be? You're going to start up with the creator of heaven and earth. And look, it's not working. It never will work. It can't work. Because this is reality. Torah is reality. But despite the fact that Torah is reality, and God is reality, and the Jewish people are reality, we've survived and outlived all our enemies. But God allows himself to go into exile. He allows that truth to be trampled on. Temporarily. It's very painful. It's very painful to see a Jew in exile. Such a deep, dark exile. To be so alienated from your Jewishness, from your own heritage, from your own Torah, from your own truth, from your own values, your own principles. But God allows this to happen. This is the mystery of the exile of the Shekhinah. It makes no sense to us. It's inexplicable. How can something so truthful, so genuine, so powerful be destroyed and trampled on? And even though it's only temporary because inevitably the truth will triumph, inevitably inevitably we'll experience the redemption because the truth at the end of the day will win. There's no question about it. It's not even in doubt. Jerusalem will triumph at the end of the day. But it's very painful to see this temporary exile. But what's the purpose? Why did God allow his, his Shekhinah, His self, and everything He symbolizes and stands for to go into exile? To, be so, to, be, to appear to be on the losing side, to be so weak, appear to be so weak and so nebuch. The purpose is to elevate all the sparks. Because when the world appears to be so dark, and yet we study Torah and we do mitzvot, we elevate all of the sparks. So that same explanation works for the soul. Why does the soul come into this world? And for the soul, it's an exile. And it's a traumatic exile. What's the purpose? It's inexplicable. We don't understand it. How can the soul that's so powerful and so intense and so deep find itself in such a situation? But the purpose is to elevate all of the sparks. And it's only temporary. Because eventually Mashiach will come. Once Mashiach comes, then the soul, just like the Shekhinah will come out of hiding, God's presence will be manifest and felt, and the truth will be manifest and felt, and there will no longer be lies and politics and diplomacy. It will be a real world, a genuine world. Inside like out, outside like in. 
So when Mashiach comes, the soul will also attain, will reach such a level. It will reach a level that's even beyond the level of the soul before it descended into this world. The soul will touch the essence of God, will experience the essence of God. God's essence will be manifest. God's essence cannot be manifest in heaven, but will be manifest in this world, in this physical world, body and soul, with the coming of Mashiach. But temporarily, the soul has to go into this exile. And yes, it's a mystery. It's inexplicable. We don't understand it. We don't understand how it works, how it's possible. How can something godly and divine be in such an exile? Be so covered up and so concealed? And um, the question is better than the answer. So hopefully, we pray to Hashem, we should remove the mystery and actually bring Mashiach because it's really, the exile has reached a point where it's really becoming intolerable. It's really becoming intolerable. I mean... The Jewish people were in Egypt. It's when they cried out and they groaned and they reached a point where they couldn't take it any longer. That's when the redemption came. The Jewish people collectively cried out, Oive, after the event in Mumbai, India. Like, enough. Oive. They were murdered just because they were Jewish. It's purely anti-Semitic. And to believe on that same week, these Jews who died because of their Jewishness, and they sanctified God's name in their life and in their death. And they united the Jewish people all over the world in such a deep way. That, that same week, you should see such a public display of Jewish self-degradation, of such a Jewish low. I mean, how low have we reached that the government of Israel has organized itself to kick Jews out? And they're so proud of it. We kick Jews out of their house. Wow, really? What an accomplishment. This is why we created Israel. So we should be able to kick Jews out of their homes. That it became a crime for a Jew to live in his own home. It became a crime for a Jew to live in Hebron. And they are called the instigators. What are they instigating? What are these settlers fighting for? Settlers became a dirty word. It's amazing. Fifteen years ago, the settlers were the heroes of Israel. With the power of the media, overnight, the word settler became a dirty word. What exactly are the settlers... What are they fighting for? They're fighting for a Jew's right to live anywhere in Israel. If a Jew can live in Berlin, do you know how many Jews there are in Berlin? 20,000. Do you know how many people live in Berlin? Three and a half million Germans. Would, would anyone say, you know, it's a provocation? There are only 20,000 Jews in Berlin. I think all Jews should move out of Berlin. Right? We'll be up in arms. We'll be marching down Fifth Avenue. Apartheid, racism. And yet in Israel, it's like everyone says, you know, there are only a handful of Jews in Hebron. There's so many more Arabs, Arab, not Arabs, and they hate the Jews. It's a provocation. Why, why are we provoking them? Let, let's, let's move out of Hebron. I mean, think about it. it it's, it's so absurd. People just parrot nonsense, parrot propaganda without even thinking what they're saying. It's a, a Jew can live in Moscow, can live in Berlin, but God forbid to live in, in Hebron. Why? Because some Arab Nazi, we're accommodating some Arab Nazi who hates a Jew so much, who doesn't even want to see a Jewish face. So we're kicking them out, and we're so proud of it. While missiles are flying on a daily basis, and people are injured and hurt, and we do nothing. Israel has the mightiest, one of the mightiest armies in the world. And we can't even, we can't even lift a pinky to protect our own, our own people. What happened to the sanctity of life? What happened to that Jewish value, that core Jewish value? You save one life, you save a world. Have we become so desensitized? Have we become so 
disconnected from our, our, ourselves, our souls, our heritage, our values, our principles, our core values? Have we become like the terrorists? Is life expendable? Is life a game? It's about a New York Times article, a New York Times editorial. Is that what determines if we're going to act or not? If we're going to protect our citizens or not? Because what's the New York Times going to think? Who cares what the New York Times thinks? We have to teach the world about the sanctity of life, about morality. And the Torah says, if one life is in danger, it's World War III. The community has to mobilize and treat it like a war. And you have to win the war and defeat the enemy. There's no compromising. There's no games. There's no political games. There's no diplomatic games. There's no calculations allowed. When it comes to life, we're not allowed to make any calculations. Let the State Department yell. Let, the, let America cut off its $3 billion of aid. When it comes to life, we don't play games. And you know what? When Jews behave that way, like in 1967, during Entebbe, when Menachem Begin took out the Iraqi reactor, the world was in awe of the Jew. They respected us, and rightfully so. We had spirit. We had courage. And today, Nebuch. Nothing. Nothing. Surrender. Surrender. Total surrender. We won the war and we're surrendering. It, it's so painful. It's so painful to watch this inner exile. We are living in... in, in Israel is a very rich country. Materially rich. But to be so spiritually impoverished... This passivity is what makes them hate us. It, it's really mind-boggling. This is the mystery of the Golos of the Shekhinah. How God can tolerate us. Because God is being trampled. His Torah is being trampled. His truth is being trampled. And He's silent. And He allows. This is a mystery. We don't understand. But the purpose is for us to elevate the sparks. But now we're, we're all sighing the collective oive. Enough already. We can't take it anymore. Enough suffering. It's time for truth to triumph. It's time for, the, will a real Jewish leader please rise? With a little pride, a little backbone, a little dignity, a little chutzpah when you need it. Will Mashiach please rise? This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.